This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. With summer coming up, I'm already dreading not only the traffic on the roads, but also the increased cost of groceries and the fact that my children eat all day long. You know, we all have stressors. Some are big and some are small, like an increased grocery bill. But therapy is a safe place to actually get these stressors off your chest and to figure out how you can actually work through them. There are many benefits to therapy for people from all walks of life. It's helpful to learn positive coping skills so you don't freak out about that grocery bill and how to set boundaries. Therapy can empower you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Moore today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Russell Moore. Welcome to the Russell Moore Show, and I am Ashley Hales, the producer of the Russell Moore Show, and of course, I am here with our host, Russell Moore. And this is one of our episodes that we put out quarterly to talk about what Russell is reading. So I'm excited to talk books again with you, Russell. Always excited to talk books. So at the end of Russell's newsletter, he always lists what he's reading, and we like to dive a little bit deeper to talk about what we're reading, because reading forms our imagination. It can give us a wider perspective. And so we want to bring you these books episodes quarterly. So be sure, of course, to follow along with Russell's newsletter where he writes down what he's reading. And one comment, Russell, that we often get is about the breadth of your reading. So we know you tend to read just kind of wherever your interests and Mm -hmm. desires lie. You're not necessarily super methodical, but where do you find the books you read? Well, I'm not methodical at all, really. (laughs) And I think I'm kind of on the lookout for people that I already read or things that I already am interested in. And then one of the things I think that is a real loss when it comes to mm. the loss of books is how much serendipity there is of just sort of, huh, that's really interesting. There's a, there was a bookstore where I used to live in Louisville called Carmichael's and I would go there every week. Well, several times a week actually, and <laughs> just sort of look around and I would always find things, huh, I didn't know this was here. And now with Amazon and everything else, I mean, the algorithm can kind of tell you things that you'll want to read, but not like that. If you're not careful, it can narrow you. Mm -hmm. I like to look at, for instance, the New York Review of Books. I find that I mostly get it for the ads because I'm looking at sort of books that are about to come out a lot of times from small independent or university presses. And often that's how I find 
books. Or there's a really good email newsletter from the Inglewood Review of Books. Mm -hmm. I always Mm -hmm. check it out because it's books that are coming out this week that might be of interest. I almost always find really interesting things there. And at the beginning of the month, they will put together the Kindle sales books that they think that people would be interested in. And I always... I always look at that and then I end up spending way too much time looking around at the Kindle <laughs> sales books every month. But that's that's helpful too. Yes, those are great, great ideas. You know, I didn't know if you like had the secret underground right sort of text thread with all your your, you know, really smart. Well, I do friends. have I do have I <laughs> do have text threads yeah, and there yeah. there often is a, hey, here's here's something that's coming out or a lot of us blurb books. For people, And so sometimes we will know, hey, there's something really good coming out. I mean, yeah. you and I were talking before we went on the air about Esau McCauley's new book that's coming out. And I read that in order to blurb it in galleys. And it's the best thing he's written, I think. And that's really that's saying wonderful. something. So I'll yeah. let people know on my text threads, hey, keep an eye out yeah. for Esau McCauley's new book because it's really good. Yes. Those sorts of yes. things. You know, I think that's really fascinating, too, because even thinking about the loss of place and just physical bookstores and the ways yeah. in which those shape us really is a great lead in to a lot of the books that you have been reading lately. Over the last quarter, you've been reading lots of them, but the five that we're going to kind of focus on today really engage questions of what does it mean to be human and what does it mean to be placed and limited and creaturely, as mm-hmm. well as where do we get these often desires to try to transcend the limits of our bodies? And how does that mess us up culturally? Yeah. I'm going to ask a few questions for Russell every time. Why'd you pick it up? What kept you reading and what stuck with you? So if you are looking for a new read, you'll be able to hear a little bit about why Russell picked these books, what kept him engaged and what also stuck with him. So our very first book that we're going to consider today is kind of a quirky collection of essays. It's called Escape into Meaning by Evan Poshak. And if you are listening or watching rather on YouTube, you can get to see the book titles here, but it's it's Escape into Meaning. And he's the founder of Nerdwriter. He makes his living on YouTube, and yet he's writing these sorts of essays that are quirky and fun and that are really engaging from a younger person's point of view about how we live in the world. So why'd you pick this one up, Russell? I was not familiar with this author, but I think this is one that I found at a physical bookstore somewhere, if Mm -hmm. I'm remembering right. And I just sort of, the title intrigued me. And then when I flipped it open, I noticed he had an essay on Tolkien and he had an essay on Superman. And Mm -hmm. both of those things I love. And so I thought, well, this will be interesting. Mm -hmm. And I kind of looked around at a couple of paragraphs in each of those sections and said, okay, he he knows what he's talking about. So I'm intrigued to see where where (laughs) he comes down. Right. So he got his street cred a little bit for you. What what stuck with you in in that book? Well, I mean, on the one hand, it was that that he really did know what he was writing about. I mean, there are a couple of things that I look for in something that I know about, I kind of Mm -hmm. look for typical cliches that people will say if they don't know what they're talking about Mm -hmm. on that subject. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Nobody can know everything about everything, but it's a real tell. And so, for instance, this chapter on Superman, it's a real tell when you have somebody who will say, 
well, this is a boring character because he's mm-hmm. invulnerable. And so it's very difficult to find situations where there's genuine tension or threat. Well, anybody who actually knows this character knows that's not true at mm-hmm. all because that's part of the problem is you have somebody who's trying to steward all this strength without hurting mm-hmm. people that he loves and with the prospect of losing the people that he loves. And he he got this. He, he even wrote about that. And so I was intrigued by that. The Tolkien chapter I was intrigued by because he is one of these people, and there are several of them. Neil Gaiman is this mm-hmm. way about Lewis, and he's this way about Tolkien. He he loves Lord of the Rings books, but he kind of resents the Christian underpinning of that. Mm-hmm. And so he's giving kind of an unbeliever's I would almost say it's a way of defending his love for Middle Earth right? along with his rejection of Jerusalem, I guess yeah. is what, yeah. what you would say. Yeah. And so that really kept me reading because I was engaging with it in my own mm-hmm. mind, especially mm-hmm. because his argument is, well, the, the reason that we resonate with Middle Earth and Narnia and other places is because we need to have meaning. I agree with mm-hmm. that. And stories provide meaning. I agree with that. But in his view, that's all there is. The stories are making the meaning and there's no meaning behind it. Where right. There's no where, ultimate meaning. Right? Yeah, yeah. Where What I argue is the reason that we love subcreated stories is because we have a longing for meaning. And mm-hmm. so I see it more the way Lewis did at the end of Surprised by Joy. The, the right. longing indicates there's an appetite. And the right. appetite points to something that is real. So I disagree with the way he saw it, but he argued his case really well. And I enjoyed kind of mentally arguing with him. <laughs> That's great. And, you know, I think all books, right, become interactive too that yeah. way for us. And that it also really enlarges our sympathy and our understanding of completely different points of view. That's another thing that's really important about the breadth of your own reading, right, is that it allows you to kind of inhabit a whole different way of thinking and freshen up your own. Well, and even even when it doesn't give you sympathy, it can help you to think through your own convictions and your mm-hmm. own point mm-hmm. of view. Because a lot of times I think, you know, for instance, with this essay, I might ordinarily stand up and talk about why people resonate with the Lord of the Rings books. And I might talk about that narrative underpinning of reality and how we long for that. Well, this reminds me, okay, you have to engage with the people who will say, it's not that we read stories because we're Mm -hmm. looking for meaning. We read Mm -hmm. stories because there is no meaning and we're constructing it. So so Mm -hmm. that gives you an extra step, even if you don't find yourself having sympathy or empathy with, right. with the author. Right. It helps engage the assumptions of your of your hearers, yeah. if, you know, or your your readers. The next one is a, a piece of fiction called The Singularities by John Banville, winner mm-hmm. of the Booker Prize. And if you're watching on YouTube, it's a fantastic cover. It is, yeah. <laughs> it's it's Yeah, it's quite ominous looking, but I just was able to crack open the first few pages and the narrator is fascinating and very fun. And I just appreciated, you know, being immersed right into this kind of quirky, weird, obsessive 
voice. (laughs) I know that you're a huge fiction reader, that that's where you tend to go versus nonfiction. So how did you pick up the singularities? I don't know, but I'm not a longtime Banville Mm -hmm. reader or fan. And as I was reading this book, I wished that I were because I think I would have had a completely different experience reading this book. Because one of the reasons that the book is so confusing is that you have these these characters who are, are showing up from from nowhere and intersecting with one another. The, yeah. the narrator, you're like, wait a minute, where is this coming from? And it seems to yeah. be like a Greek god talking. And how does that fit with this? Right. Yeah. Well, it's what's like happening? on the second paragraph, right, where he just kind of says, like, who's talking? I am a god. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, yeah. What? If if somebody else had written this a different way, I probably would have mm-hmm. said, I don't know what's going on here, and I would have right. just uh, put it away. But he he draws you in. And the reason I say I wish that I had been a Banville reader mm-hmm. all along is because what he's doing is taking all of these characters from previous books that have nothing to do with each other and bringing them together in this yeah. story, which is even more important because the story is about this scientist who proves the existence of the multiverse and, mm-hmm. and what that does to. So if you were somebody who had been reading this all along, it would be kind of like the last live action Spider-Man movie mm-hmm. when the two previous right. Spider-Man actors yeah. Yeah. show up Spoiler alert. I guess I should have said that first, but it's been long it's enough. Been you out should for know a while. this. Yeah. yeah. And I saw it the opening day. So I was in mm-hmm. the theater with people who really as is unusual with movies. You really hadn't heard that this was happening yet. Mm-hmm. And the place just went wild because you're seeing yeah. all these streams coming together. That's what the book really mm-hmm. was. And it mm-hmm. was it was engaging with it. I think that's probably one reason why I kept with it is it's engaging with that same theme that we were just talking about right, of yeah. meaning. I mean, he keeps mm-hmm. the the kind of the central conceit is that after there's this discovery of the Brahma principle mm-hmm. in which, so let's say, how, how do I describe this? In which it's proven that observing something changes it. Mm-hmm. And so science then has been creating the world by observing it. And so scientists are now pulling back to stop from doing that. Mm-hmm. There's this question of, well, then does anything mean anything? And that's not just mm-hmm. in the sort of the big scientific perspective, but in all of these characters' lives, that's what ultimately is being asked is at the end of all this, was it all for nothing? That's the central question. And, and of yeah. course, I think that's the central question in everybody's mm-hmm. life, whether they want yeah. to face it or not. Yeah. So, I mean, and it's so important to engage these questions, not just, you know, in a sort of philosophical treatise, right? But mm-hmm. in fiction, you can get immersed into that question in quite a different way. Yeah. And, and you can see the way that different personalities engage with Mm -hmm. that question in Mm -hmm. completely different ways, just like they do in real life. You have some people who engage with the question by just sort of distracting themselves and diverting themselves Mm -hmm. in various ways. And other people who are kind of wrecked by it, you know, and and it, Mm -hmm. it kind of shows you these categories that you, you see, but you don't really know that you see with the people Mm -hmm. you're, you're Mm -hmm. talking to. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think all good 
writing, especially fiction writing, really helps us to to see and to visualize and kind of name something, right, that we didn't have a name for. And, and it immerses us in a different way, right, than nonfiction saying, here, here's your definition. This is how you should understand this sort of thing. Yeah. And there are also in this book, there are so many lines that are alone, really mm-hmm. powerful, mm-hmm. It really similar to Marilyn Robinson in mm-hmm. this way. But mm-hmm. he'll say things like he, he wrote in here, even a nihilist believes in the nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, that sort of thing it, that's just kind of offhand in the text, yeah. but it yeah. sticks with you. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. So our next step, and again, these are kind of thematically tied together. The next book you read was an issue of social commentary, but kind of questions of meaning making and transhumanism come up. Uh, We're going to talk next about the survival of the richest, Mm -hmm. the escape fantasies of the tech billionaires by Douglas Rushkoff. And if you haven't listened, we did have a transhumanism episode earlier, so we'll be sure to link that in the show notes. But you know, what was it about this book that that kind of grabbed you initially, Russell? I think because I had written about this phenomenon a little bit earlier mm-hmm. on the, oh, somebody who called them arc heads, mm-hmm. this kind of arc mentality of using mm-hmm. the imagery of, of mm-hmm. Noah, of building something that can withstand cataclysm. Mm-hmm. And that's really what this book is about, but it's in different ways. It's talking about these tech billionaires who really, if you listen to them, Mm -hmm. have a really dystopian view of the world and a utopian view of themselves. Mm -hmm. And so there's really bad disaster coming Mm -hmm. and they see different sorts of disasters. Some of them is climate change. For some of them, it's artificial intelligence going badly, other things. And they're trying to find some way to get away from that through, you know, Elon Musk wanting to colonize Mars and the moon to Ray Kurzweil and people like that who are wanting to download their consciousness onto a cloud and to escape death to people who are wanting to really perfect the metaverse in such Mm -hmm. a way that they can have an alternative place to live. All of those things, it's kind of... It reminded me a lot as a kid who grew up in a Bible Belt dispensationalist church Mm -hmm. with a lot of talk about the rapture. 
Yeah. It really has that vibe, just yeah. secularized. Yeah. The, this yeah. is sort of the left behind tech bro yeah. edition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. And, you know, Rushkoff talks about it as like this, quote unquote, the mindset, right? And that yeah. what's, what's fascinating about what he calls the mindset is he says at one point that, you know, it's it's divorced from any sort of collective identity. So one thing that's really fascinating in this book is he talks about the political moment that we're in and what does it look like when we have lost this communal identity and kind of live in this tech billionaire world. And he writes this, when we've never seen a society avoid fascism when it gets to this stage of economic inequality or a civilization avoid collapse when it has taxed its physical environment to this extent. That's a big statement. There's this sense, right, where Jeff Bezos is saying thank you so much for buying all these Amazon packages so that I can succeed, right, rather than mm -hmm. any sort of sense of, of collective identity. Well, I mean, I don't remember if it was in this book or in another, but there was a discussion about income inequality. Yeah. And there was this. Re in this one. It was in this one. This mm -hmm. repudiation of what one would naturally say. I mean, w this is the greatest economic period in the history of the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have a, a level of living and technological advancement of things we just take for granted that even the poorest people have. And so how can you say that this is a period of economic collapse? But the point is with income inequality is it's not, it's not what you have. It's what you're comparing yourself to. So I, I think about this all the time. Uh, mm -hmm. Tom Nichols was on, I think on the bulletin, with us, or maybe it was somewhere else. He was talking about how growing up as a kid in working class Massachusetts, that he never was in a home that was that much nicer than mm -hmm. his. There mm -hmm. were some that were nicer, but he wasn't in one in some. And so we kind of had a, we're all, we're all kind of in this together. Now, when you have people can go on Zillow and look at all kinds of things, or my son has gotten into watching these pool construction shows, which I didn't even know existed, but it's about people who come in and construct these luxury pools in people's yards. And uh -huh. my son said, if I were somebody who played a drinking game, yeah. I could do that with the word grotto on this show. <laughs> <laughs> That's hysterical. <laughs> Raise all kinds right. of questions. Right, but yeah. But, you know, you can see those kinds of things and that creates an even greater distance and a sense of deprivation, even right. when there's not one. And I mm -hmm. found that to be a compelling argument. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think there's the idea behind it, too. He writes in the end of the book about the importance of actually finding our identities through community. What I think happens with poverty, especially now is that poverty is inherently isolating in this, mm -hmm. in this kind of society. That wouldn't have been the case, for instance, in the Great Depression. My grandparents were Depression-era mm -hmm. kids. And what they would talk about in terms of the way that everybody sort of saw, this is a crisis, all of us are in the same situation, uh, you know, nobody was hanging out with Rockefellers mm -hmm. and they're mm -hmm. all, you know, kind of moving in together when somebody lost their house and, and so forth. Now you look around 
and you see whether you're talking about urban or rural, all of these categories, there's a sense in which poverty is pulling people away from each other. I, I think there's a sense right now culturally of personal failure that mm. is associated with with a, a lack of economic status that, it, that just isn't mm. rooted in mm-hmm. reality. But there's mm-hmm. that cultural sense. And so you have people who kind of withdraw. I've seen this a lot of people who mm-hmm. actually it's kind of shame that yeah. they kind of start to withdraw in shame, even though they don't have anything to be ashamed of <laughs> and start to then find ways to to numb that in a lot of cases, not in every case, yeah. but in a lot of cases. And that's it's not that it's necessarily a different economic time, but it's a very different cultural approach to the economics. Yeah. Right. That rather than when we experience hardship or suffering, that we actually then are are oriented towards one another yeah. and ex- expecting our neighbors to be neighborly. Yeah. Rather and, than and, and there different. are some exceptions to that. I mean, for instance, a lot of people talk about and complain about oh, these kids who are who are staying in their parents' basements and all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. And and sometimes that is because of perpetual adolescence or, or what <laughs> right, have you. Right. But I've seen it a lot more lately. I've got a really close friend, couple, they had their their daughter and son-in-law come stay with them over the pandemic mm-hmm. and they had a baby and it just worked. Yep. And it was good for everybody involved. And when they moved away, my friends were really sad. I mean, it wasn't like, oh, we finally got these <laughs> kids out of it. They were really sad. And it, mm-hmm. and I realized it's because they actually were experiencing the way most human lives have been lived up until mm-hmm. the, the, the modern era. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we have lost something with that being gone. Yeah. I think I read something recently or heard something saying that actually in new housing across the United States, there's more and more of the sense of having, you know, like the mother-in-law unit or yeah. that, that we're moving back to multi-generational households. Yes, I, I heard that too. And I can't remember where that Maybe where it that was, was on one, of, one it, of your shows. It may have been. It <laughs> may have been. But it's, I talked about that at the dinner table here and one of my sons just starts looking up at the ceiling. And I said, what? And he said, oh, I'm just trying to imagine what we're going to do with your books. Yeah, I will tell you, a bunch of my books are just still in the garage, even in our own yeah. house. So there you go. <laughs> well, the fourth book that you kind of highlighted in this last quarter is a historical book called God With Us, Lived Theology and the Freedom Struggle in Americus, Georgia, 1942 to 1976. So it's interesting because, you know, Rushkoff, the last book we talked about, kind of writes about the black community as a great example of communal identity and antidote to some of that kind of tech billionaire individualism. You know, how has this book informed your thinking? Well, I, I, I got this book because it deals a lot with someone who's a hero of mine, Clarence Jordan from mm-hmm. America's Georgia, who's a fellow proud alum of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Although he's of a several generations back and mm-hmm. he's somebody that I mean, I've always admired him. And for whatever reason, lately, I keep finding myself with people who knew him. I mean, even though he died mm-hmm. in the what the early 70s, I think 
But a lot of people who knew him or who worked with him and hearing a lot of these stories about Koinonia Farms, which was a mm-hmm. an interracial farm in South Georgia that created all of this hostility from the rest mm-hmm. of the community. This book's about him. That's, that's why I picked it up. But then mm-hmm. it goes on mm-hmm. to talk about there are different sections, one on the African-American community in Americas and what was going on there during these years of Jim Crow and how they were engaging with the broader civil rights movement all the way through to the reason it goes to 1976 is because it deals with the emergence of Jimmy Carter, uh, who, of course, Mm -hmm. is in Plains, just right out from Americas, and who had to deal with his church. Several white churches talked about in this book that had to answer the question of what they were going to do about segregation. And Carter's church voted to remain segregated, not to receive African-American worshipers. The Carters voted against that, but Mm -hmm. that's what the church decided to do. And so it's all of this, Hmm. and a lot of it is really resonant and feels really immediate because it's Mm -hmm. family estrangement, it's churches that are justifying what they're doing in terms of their theology, including Ku Klux Klan and and those sorts of things. But it's got these heroic figures that are there. I mean, for instance, Mm -hmm. Jordan, who was, you know, an overall wearing farmer, even though he was a New Testament PhD. And Mm -hmm. one of the Klansmen came and said, you're going to you're going to end this project. And the big problem for them was not the farm. It was the fact that you had mm-hmm. black people and white people eating together. And they were intentionally trying to replicate the book of Acts. And mm-hmm. they said, you're going to stop this. And people who do this are not going to see sundown. And and Jordan responded, well, you know, I'm a Southern Seminary grad and I've, I've heard about people who could command the sun to be still in the sky, but I've never <laughs> met yeah. one. Sort <laughs> of use Cute. humor in order to engage with these yeah, folks. Yeah. So it's a, it feels, sadly, I think in many ways, really close. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like it gave you any sort of pathway looking back for our current moment? Well, between this book and there's a Plow did a little collection of mm-hmm. Jordan sermons, and the same mm-hmm. person who edited that did a fantastic biography of mm-hmm. Jordan. It gave a path forward just with seeing some of these people who didn't give up, even though Mm -hmm. they would have Mm -hmm. every earthly reason just to say this, Mm -hmm. this is never Mm -hmm. going to go anywhere. And so that is, I, I think, one of the key insights. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, It's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come 
come here. Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. Well, it sounds a bit, you know, Jordan, as you were talking about, as the New Testament PhD with his overalls sounds a little bit like a Wendell mm-hmm. Berry, which brings mm-hmm. us to our next book. You you read a collection of his essays. It all turns on affection, the Jefferson Lecture and other essays by Wendell Berry, one of your heroes. So it'll be fun just to chat a little bit about I mean, I, I guess I know you picked it up because it's Barry. Well, right? this but. was a rereading. <laughs> I mean, I've read this book. I don't know how many times, but I picked it up again this time because I had been having this conversation with somebody about the Mm -hmm. difference between statistical knowledge and Mm. and personal knowledge and the Mm -hmm. fact that Mm. that knowledge isn't just sort of chat GPT facts laid out, that it requires imagination and imagination requires Mm -hmm. affection. And so I was. I was wanting to quote something that Mr. Berry said in this book. So I took it back down and then I found myself sort of flipping around at my highlights and rereading them. And before I knew it, I sat down and I'd I'd reread the book. Yeah. It's a short little book, but there's a lot of there's a lot of insight in there. Yes. Yes. What I really loved about that Jefferson lecture, he talks about from Wallace Stegner, another fantastic mm-hmm. writer, but he writes about this idea of boomers, not as the generation, but those who want this level of comfort, they want to move away and stickers, yeah. right? Those who are going to care for a place. And he talks about, you know, the problem is with these two groups of people is that there's a failure of imagination and imagination tunes the affections, which is a helpful way to kind of rethink maybe or deepen, right? Some of that Augustine question about that where our hearts are restless until they rest in God. That what does it look like to stir the affections? Yeah. And I think too, it's, I, I think there's this mentality that says that real thinking is cognition mm. and imagination right. is the escape from thinking. And so it's mm-hmm. the, it's the opposite. Mm-hmm. You're in an right. imaginary story world, you know, sort of thing we might say to somebody. Right, right. And that's not true. That sort of computer data collection kind of thinking actually isn't knowledge. It's one right. component of it. Mm-hmm. And that, that's his, that's his point. And of course, his primary concern is the land and the, the connection with the right. land. But I think it applies beyond that. You know, I, I would apply it to the Bible. You don't really know the Bible if you're just a sort of concordance. And I have that on my mind, I guess, because my wife came in yesterday or the day before and said, hey, do you have a concordance? And I said, no. And she said, are you kidding? You've got 10,000 books right here. And I said, yeah, but it's been so long since I've needed a concordance when you can do searchable stuff. I mean, who right, right. Yeah. <laughs> who still has one? But there's a, a way in which you can be kind of a Bible program. Mm-hmm. You know how to search through For everything sure. or you know all the data, but you don't actually know it. 
because you don't know what it means to be personally addressed by it and to have mm. you know, what, what Jesus talks about, those who seek will find. There's a a certain kind of longing and love and imagination that's required before mm-hmm. the revelation happens. And so mm-hmm. I think that it really applies to that, to personal Bible reading, to the way mm-hmm. that we teach the Bible in small groups or other places. It, it, that's really relevant to this, I think. Yeah. For those of us who might be stuck in this idea of, you know, I know God by download of a bunch of facts, right? A bunch of information. Mm -hmm. How do we help folks begin to open up those little imaginative corners of their brain and their mind and their hearts uh, to engage with scripture, particularly maybe as an example, more imaginatively so that it kind of gets in our bones, right? same way music might. Well, I normally come at it indirectly. And what Mm -hmm. I try to do is to find a place that somebody actually does connect through imagination and affection. And there Mm -hmm. there almost Mm -hmm. always is a place like that. They just don't know that Mm -hmm. they can connect to God's word that way. And so what I try to do is to find what that is and show them how they're responding to that. And then mm-hmm. teach them mm-hmm. how to apply. I know that's people who have taught me, that's what works is they come in mm-hmm. and say, wait, you actually do know how to do this. You just don't know that you know how to do it. But if you can mm-hmm. just do what you're doing here and mm-hmm. and expand on that in this way and apply it over here, that just is an easier way for me to learn something than to think, okay, I've got to from point zero, come up with this entirely new way of doing or knowing or being, when usually Mm -hmm. that's really not the case. So it's kind of Acts 17. Paul comes in and says, you Mm -hmm. say you don't know what I'm talking about, but you actually do. Yeah. 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 And so find those places. these dots. Yeah. Yeah. That's really helpful. Yeah. You know, I've been thinking a lot about how you actually do that. Mike Cosper and I are going to be leading a writing workshop in October. Mm -hmm. And so we're thinking a lot about how do you write actually to stir the heart, to stir the affections, but it requires a lot of vulnerability too. And a lot of really good fictional sorts of moments, right? Where you're able to zero in on the concrete detail as well to, to put us in place. Yeah. And it, it kind of brings me back to that first book, Escape into Meaning, that we talked about, because he talks about in there something that I think is absolutely true, which is you don't think first and then express. That almost never happens. You instead think through expressing. And for Mm -hmm. some people, you know, that works out in different ways for different people. For some people, that's through writing. For, for me, it's either through writing or teaching. And so mm-hmm. I don't, I'm teaching through Exodus right now. Mm-hmm. I don't engage mm-hmm. with Exodus and then go out and teach it. As I'm teaching it, I'm learning yeah. Exodus. Right. And that's one of the reasons why I do a weekly newsletter is because mm-hmm. I force myself to sit down and write about something. I rarely know what I think about something until I yeah. actually write about it. And engage with that. Yep. And so the newsletter is really, it's kind of a hack for me to force yeah. me into thinking. And if yeah. I and I can't trick myself into doing that, 
because you could say, well, why don't you just write it out? I can't do that. I've got to have people who are going to say, well, it's Thursday. Where's this? If I know that, <laughs> right. that forces me yep. to yep. to express something. And that's how I grapple with it and think things through. And, you know, for, yes. for a lot of people, it's not writing, but it's it's some other way of doing that. And I think that's just a, a really important principle. Yeah. Even in conversation, mm-hmm. right? Scheduling a walk with a friend and talk about the scripture passage you're, you've been reading, right? Those are ways that we very practically in very small ways. You don't have to be a writer, but it is helpful to process in community, yeah. which again, seems yet another theme of, of, our, of our time. And it takes a specific kind of giftedness to, I mean, I've I've been in awkward sort of dinner table. Okay, here are the things mm-hmm. we're going to discuss. You're just like, oh. uh-huh. But there's a particular kind of gifted person mm-hmm. who knows how to do that, but in a mm-hmm. sneaky kind of way where you don't actually right. know that that's what they're doing until later. Yeah. And say, okay, somebody's guiding us through these conversations, <laughs> but we just thought we were just having a conversation. Right. Which is the best way to learn. Well, don't forget, you can always send us your reading list, Russell also publishes Desert Island Playlist and Desert Island Reading Lists in his newsletter. So you can email those 10 to 12 books that you'd take with you if you were stranded on a desert island to questions at russellmore.com. So thanks, Russell. And as we end, tell us what's at the top of your to-be-read list going forward towards the end of the year at the moment. You know, that is such a hard question for me for whatever reason. The minute that somebody asks me, what are you reading or what are you wanting to read? It just disappears from me. But I'm reading some kind of creepy things right now, which I think might surprise people, but not not gory horror stuff, but just Mm -hmm, some... mm -hmm creepy things that I downloaded in order to read while I was on vacation uh-huh. and still have some of them to read. So. Right. You, it's just, that feels fitting for fall, right? You need something yeah. a little dark and mysterious. Thank you again, as always, to share your books at length a bit with your listeners. It's always a pleasure to talk about your reading and the themes that it brings up. Thanks, Ashley. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Eric Petrick, Russell Moore, and Mike Cosper. Host, Russell Moore. Producer, Ashley Hales. Associate producers, Abby Perry and Azure Phelps. Director of Operations for CT Media is Matt Stevens. Audio engineering is provided by Dan Phelps. Our video producer is Abby Egan. And the theme song for The Russell Moore Show is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.